0: It's good to be back with you. <laughs> it was good the first time. Well, that was a jolt. That was good. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 2. And uh, this is the seventh message in our series on John. And we... um we, we haven't even gotten started good, but boy, this is a great book, and we'll have a good time with this. Let me, let me read it with you, and uh, I'll talk for a moment. John chapter 2, begin with the first verse. We'll go to verse 11. The first sign turning water into wine. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each one contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. And they filled the water to the brim. And he said to them now draw some out and take it to the chief servant And they did And when the servant tasted the water after it become wine, he did not know where it came from Though the servants who had drawn the water knew he called the groom and told him Everybody sets out the fine wine first and then after the people have drunk freely the inferior But you have kept the fine wine until now Jesus performed this first sign in cana of galilee listen He displayed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Father, thank you for your word. Speak clearly to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you know, seven of us were gone last week, and I know Dr. Cook told a joke that we would be playing golf, but we did not. I promise you. I have six witnesses to prove that, that we did not play golf. But we had some great worship last week. Four days of solid worship day and night. It was wonderful. Um. I I jotted down some things I wanted to share with you before I start preaching today. God's church is filled with power. You gotta know that. God's church is here. His spirit is in us. His spirit doesn't reside in the church. It resides in the believer, but his church is filled with power. And the call to ministry or any other task that God calls you to, there is also a call to intimacy with God. Without intimacy with God, for each of us, there will be despair and desperation. You have to have intimacy with God. God's ways are not our ways. We are not bound together by earthly things, but by God's power. You know, our church, the unity of our church is not just by the fact that we know each other and some people are related and we're friends and we work together, but we're bound by God's spirit. That is a powerful bond bond. Listen to this. God's love is irrevocable. It is irrevocable without exception. It is ironclad for each of us. There's never anything that you can do that God won't love you. Isn't that wonderful to know? God always loves you. I really love this statement. God is good to the pastor. He's good when people are fickled. He's good when I'm fickled. He provides for us continuously. God reconciled us by holding Jesus accountable for our sin. That's how we were made right with God. J.D. Greer said Thursday night or Friday night, suffering is a primary tool that God uses to work in our life. Did you hear that? Suffering is a primary tool that God uses. If dependence on God is your objective, then weakness is your advantage. Much of what God does with us is to prepare us for him. You can change the world through prayer. You can do some things. God will do some things. And some things can only be done by prayer. We should be people of prayer. God will not change us radically until we go to him. Please hear that. God will not change us radically. Until we go to him. Repentance is a change of heart. That results in a change. Of behavior. Dr. Erwin Lutzer said that God. Loves to prune the branches. It hurts us. But it makes us better and stronger. Will we trust God. If he treats us like unbelievers. A.J., we have great music here in this place. But great music does not guarantee great worship. Because worship is between us and God. We should all prepare ourselves before we come to worship. And I want to show you this slide. You might want to jot it down. Dr. Luther gave us this. Here's a prayer before you get out of bed every morning. Before you roll out of bed, he emphasized that he rolled out of bed nowadays. But he says, when you roll out of bed... God, glorify yourself in my life today, even if it's at my expense. It is not about me. Say that every day when you get out of bed. Glorify. Glorify yourself in my life, even if it's not at my expense. Even if it is, it's not at my expense. So today we're going to look at Jesus' first miracle. There are only eight of these in the Gospel of John. He takes... Uh, uh, the, the miracles that we see in the other three gospels, and we see only a few. And there are for a particular purpose. Each one will show us something about Jesus that we didn't know. And so today, we are seeing a picture of Christ that we didn't know about. It happened at a wedding. We're told on the third day, probably the third day from the call of Philip and Nathaniel, uh, from the time that John the Baptist. Met Jesus until today. has been a week. This, these events have all transpired from John chapter 1 verse 19 till today is the span of one week. Jesus was invited to a wedding. A wedding in Jewish life was a major social event. It was the largest event in the life of the people that attended the wedding. For the families of the young bride and groom, it was something they planned for all their life. I think our young brides plan for wives or weddings now, most of their lives, but it was really a big deal. It was a seven day affair. It, it, it started, the, the wedding started uh, at the end of the engagement or betrothal period. A betrothal period lasted about a year. You were engaged. It required a divorce to legally separate the couple, but they did not consummate the marriage. They did not live together during that year. And so when the wedding feast, uh, began on that day in the evening, the, the groom and his attendants would come together, or would come together and they would travel and get the bride and her attendants and they would bring them back to the groom's house and there they would have a great celebration. Now, today it's a little bit different. The bride's family generally pays for the wedding dinner. But in that day, the groom paid for it. The groom was responsible by legal contract to provide his family to provide a good celebration. All their friends were there. They would be king and queen for the night. They would, after the celebration, take them to their wedding chamber. But then for the rest of a week, they they would parade the bride and groom around and their wedding glory. This was a huge event. No small social affair. Wine was a staple part of this. This was real wine. We're not I know we Baptists, we took a long time for us to acknowledge, Dean, that they drank real wine, but they drank real wine, the, the fruit of the vine. That's what they drank. I don't encourage that. I don't drink personally. I I'm not opposed to it necessarily. I'm not telling you you can't have a beer, drink wine, but listen to this. Listen to this. Uh, Max Licato said probably one of the best statements I've ever heard. He said, one thing for sure, I've never heard anybody say, a beer makes me feel more Christ-like. How about that? <laughs> Paul talked about us losing our witness over alcohol. We have to be very careful about it. And so I'll just leave that with you. But these folks drank wine not, not to... Get drunk, though they probably did, but they did it because it was part of a grand celebration. Wine in the Bible. Is seen as, as a, as a symbol for joy. If you look over in Psalm 104, it talks about the joy and the psalmist is writing, he says, it causes the grass, he, meaning God causes the grass to grow for the livestock to provide crops for man to cultivate producing food from the earth, wine that makes a heart, man's heart glide, glad makes his face shine with oil and the bread that sustains a man's heart. So, so in the Bible, wine is a symbol for joy. And so they've drank fruit of the the vine to celebrate the marriage of a young couple. But this story is not about wine. And and often we Baptist preachers have to begin this with some discussion about alcohol and its use. But I will tell you that this was all about providing wine for that feast. Jesus came to the wedding. That's the first thing I, I want you to know. That Jesus was invited to a wedding. I I get I officiate weddings and of course as pastor I get to do that that's a real honor. I I get invited to some weddings. Um, it's kind of fun to get invited to a wedding and not to do anything to just go. Sometimes people invite the preacher because they probably should, they think they should. I they don't, they don't have to in my mind, but some people feel like well we got to ask the preacher. But I I hope that when I get invited to come that I just, because somebody said they would like for us to be there. You know, I think Jesus was invited to this wedding because his, the people wanted him to be there. He had not yet begun his public ministry. He had not yet preached a sermon. He'd only called these disciples. There were five disciples there. His family was there. It might have been people related to him in some way. There were certainly people that he knew in that community, but they invited him. I think it's remarkable that Jesus, the Son of God, the, the creator of the earth, the Savior of the world, was invited to a wedding because people liked him enough they wanted him there. They weren't afraid of him. They, weren't, they, they thought, oh, we, we, we don't want to do that in front of him. It wasn't like that. They wanted him there. They invited him to a wedding. And we're told... That when he came to the wedding, the wine ran out. But let, let me say this. You know, we invite, need to invite Jesus into our life, too. We, we need to invite him to our weddings. I think a wedding should be about Jesus. But you shouldn't just invite him to your wedding. You should invite him to your marriage. He should be in your home. He should be invited to your family gathering. You should invite him to your workplace. Oh, yeah. You ought to invite him to sit in the midst of your family, whether it's going well or going difficult with difficulty. Jesus will bring flavor to our lives. He'll bring power and peace. In fact, he says, all of you, all of you take up my yoke and learn from me because I am gentle And humble in heart. And you'll find rest for yourselves. So wherever you are, invite him. Bring him in. Have him sit at your table. Involve him in your daily life. But when Jesus came to the wedding, we're told the wine ran out. It was a pretty simple statement in verse three. The wine ran out. Jesus' mother told him they don't have any wine. Mary must have been more than a bystander herself because she wasn't just one of the folks sitting back and say, you know, the food's not very good or this is not very good or it's a little bit hot in here. She's not just critical, but she seemed she seemed responsible for what was going on. So maybe she was a relative of some sort. And she turned to Jesus and said, the wine has run out. This is not some little minor thing. This is a, a big deal. It's a real crisis. It could stigmatize the groom and his family for the rest of their lives. Listen to what one commentator says: We can't overemphasize the distress in Mary's words. They have no more wine. In a Jewish wedding, wine was essential, not so the guests could drink to excess, but because it was a symbol of joy and celebration. It was of such great importance. Listen, that a lawsuit, a lawsuit could be instituted if no wine was provided at the wedding. Those who were behind the scenes at that little wedding in Cana were shattered by this breakdown in hospitality. Childhood dreams of an ideal wedding were about to dissolve into a nightmare in front of everybody. The drama in our text is very real. And so all the miracles did something. And on the surface, this miracle avoided a catastrophe for that family. And so when the wine ran out, we were told in the Bible that Jesus' mother told him they don't have any wine. And Jesus seemed kind of blunt with his response. Now, I don't know how you talk to your mother, but if I ever responded to my mother, what do you want me to do about this woman? I probably would not have survived with all my teeth. And I, my mom passed away when I was 86. I think that would carry till the day before she died. I would never speak to my mom like that. But you got to understand the Greek. It's not a bad thing. It sounds rude, but it's a polite, formal address. It's like saying, ma'am, what does this mean to you and me? In other words, it's really not my problem. Ma'am, respectfully, just remember that Jesus would never say anything to his mother that the best of us sons would not say to our mothers. So he wasn't being rude to his mom at all. He was being formal, a little bit detached. He's letting his mom know that things have changed. That no longer do I live in your home in Nazareth and help run the carpentry shop like he had done for 30 years. But now I am on mission with my father. And I listen to him. So the things that used to matter at home don't matter as much. Because Jesus said that you got to leave your house and your home. And no man that's not wor- not willing to do that is worthy to follow him. And he say that, right? And so things have changed in the home of Jesus. He's letting his mom know that. But, you know, Mary must have, oh, oh, then Jesus said one more thing. He said, my hour has not come. John said this five times in his gospel. He wanted to let us know that Jesus' work here was far bigger than the things that he did. And then when the hour did come, when Jesus came to the cross and, and was crucified and resurrected, John would say three times that his hour had come. That was his hour, the time for him to be glorified, the time for him to fulfill the work that God sent him to do. All of these things were leading up to that, showing the world who Jesus was. And so that's what they did. I like what Mary says, though, in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you, he told the servants. "Oh, by the way, deacons, the word servant, and there in verse five is the same word for servant. in First Timothy chapter three, verse eight. When Paul talks about the role of the first deacons as servants of the church. when Mary addressed the servants at the wedding, that's who they were addressing. They were addressing the servants, the, the workers. And so Mary looked over to those servants and after Jesus had said, whatever you have is not really any business of mine. She must have known her son. She must have known about her son enough. She must have have believed in him enough that she looked to those servants, didn't say a word to Jesus, looked to those servants and said, just do whatever he tells you to do. Isn't that a great story? I mean, you kind of wonder what everybody was thinking here at this point. Do whatever he tells you. That's really great advice, church. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And, and, and you know, so often we're looking for other solutions, but we can go to God's word and do whatever he tells you. If he gives you instructions on your marriage through the Bible, then do whatever he tells you to do. Follow those instructions carefully. If he tells you to seek first the kingdom of God and all the other things will be added when you're worrying and anxious about problems, then do that. Then take that to heart. Listen to what he said. Seek first the kingdom of God. Put all your energy into the kingdom of God. Don't worry about the other things. Do whatever he tells you. If he tells you to love your enemies. Wow, that's a tough one. Didn't do it. If he tells you that you and I. Because of our faith. Are the salt and light of the world. Then believe that. And wherever you go. You act like salt and light. And wherever you are. And people can identify you as a follower of Christ by the way you act and by the way that you treat people and by, by the way you carry yourself because you are salt and light in the world. The problem with Christianity, I think, Dean, it's, it's sad. I think many Christians just don't listen to what Jesus said. They, we, we, just, we just don't believe that. And we go out in the world and we act like the world and the world is begging for us to be salt and light. If Jesus tells us to do that and he tells us, Clearly in the Bible that we are salt and light, then believe that. If he tells us, and we preached two weeks ago, do not collect for yourselves treasure on earth, but build yourself treasure in heaven, then do that. And maybe that requires an adjustment in our life. Maybe we have to live our life differently. But Jesus is saying that the things that we do in this earth are worth that in eternity because he's worth that. Whatever he tells you to do. Listen to this. In John chapter 14. Jesus would tell his disciples. The night before he died. Do not be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. And believe in the father. If he tells you that. And you know I know how hard that is. I know know what a difficult command that is. Do not let your heart be troubled. But Jesus. Hours before becoming the savior of the world said if you you don't have to have your heart troubled just believe in us believe in his father believe in him that would be enough so do whatever he tells you to do that's what mary said to the servants whatever he says carry it out precisely And number four, we see that obedience produces results in verses six and seven. Now, there were six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each one contained 20 or 30 gallons. The Jews, when you went to a celebration, you were required to wash yourself. The roads were dirty. They were dusty. Most people wore sandals. You would take your sandals off. You would wash your feet. You would wash your hands. You would wash your face. You would wash your utensils. You would wash everything about you. Those Those jars of water would stand about that high. There were 20 of them. There were six, so 20 to 30 gallons each. That's 180 gallons of water. They were probably mostly used. They were probably empty. Maybe mostly empty. If they had any water in them, it's probably dirty. It's kind of like saying... Debbie says to me, we have guests in our home. We have a little dishwater in the bottom of the sink. Go over there and get that dishwasher and dishwater and fill the rest of the jug with clean water and serve that to your guest. That's a pretty remarkable statement. And you see the symbolism here. Jesus is about to show us that the old system of purification, the old Jewish way of cleaning things up is about to be thrown out the door. He's about to show us something Bigger and better than we ever imagined. Because the wine ran out. They looked to him. Mary said, Do whatever he told you. So Jesus then began talking. He said, Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Each one of those jars filled to the brim of clean water. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. You understand. You see, you see the precision of this. He said to do this and they did it. They didn't say, well, you know, Boston, I don't know who you are. We don't know where you came from. That doesn't do anything. We need wine. We don't need more water. Mary said, do whatever he tells you. They filled the jars with water and then he said, draw it out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. Now listen to this. The chief servant didn't see this. He didn't, he might have been in another room. He might have been worrying about what to do because all the wine had run out. He, they brought the wine to him. They did exactly. The servants did exactly what he said. They brought the wine to him. And then in verse nine, when the, when the chief servant tasted it after, tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. And though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him. He said, everybody sets out the fine wine first. You know, that's kind of a good, I don't, I don't plan parties. I don't know. I guess that sounds like a good plan. You get the first, you get the best wine first. You give everybody the best wine first, and once they've kind of drunk to their fill and everybody's feeling kind of giddy, then you get the cheap stuff out. And I, like I say, don't know anything about that personally, but I'm just that makes sense to me. <laughs> and, but but listen to this. The chief servant says. Everybody sets out the fine wine, and then after people drunk freely, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Because he tasted the wine from the water pots, from Jewish purification, and it was the best wine they'd had. It was the best stuff. So, that's really important. His wine wine was the best. It, It was probably foolish there for those servants to fill the pots with water to start with. But you know, Paul said that God would use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He said that. And Jesus then gave them specific instructions. Which they carried out. And we see the example of Jesus in his new covenant. Because after the system of Jewish purification. After all the things. The sacrifices. And the endless uh, repetition of things that had to be done in the temple. For the forgiveness of sins. uh, Jesus is saying. That old way. This new way is far better. It's a lot better than anything you've experienced. And so when the seward. When the servants brought the wine to the chief steward, he said, this is the best stuff yet. This is really good stuff. His wine was the best. The old sacrifices were spent and useless. Jesus' new way would be the way that everybody would go. His gift would be gracious. He would make 180 gallons of wine. Can you imagine how many hundreds of people could be served for that? Scholars tell us they probably would only use 30 or 40 gallons. So Jesus had given this young couple a gracious gift to start their marriage. They would have 100 gallons if they used 80 To start their marriage, they would have a wonderful gift of fine wine. There's grace in it. His first gift wasn't spectacular. You know, we always like to look at the faith healers and they bring somebody up to the front in front of the TV cameras and they heal somebody supposedly and everybody watches. This this miracle, nobody saw it. Mary, the servants, they knew about it. The the chief steward, he... He was like, "Where did this come from? How did this happen?" But between the time the water was filled up and picked up and carried to the chief steward, it all turned into wine. That's the way the miracle read. Jesus brought joy after the wine ran out. I want you to think about that for a minute. That Jesus brought joy after the wine ran out. Uh, have you ever seen? Have you ever been a time your joy is gone? wore out when your joy is exhausted you know uh, we heard last week aj i don't know exactly i didn't write this down exactly right but they said that a lot of our sermons sometimes on saturday night they don't have much in them we kind of wonder we worry about them we, we look at our message and say this just how how what am we going to say about this and by sunday morning god adds a wine have you, ever, have you ever been in a situation where you just feel like you don't have any joy? And so the lesson of this parable is this. To listen, to first have Jesus there. To listen carefully to what he says. And do what he says. And bring the joy back into your life. Maybe age took away your youth. Maybe some illness took away your health. Maybe you lost someone that you love and you don't think life can ever be the same. But we see here that when Christ shows up, that he brings joy in a situation there was no joy. He he brings us, he brings us something we never even imagined having because we had him there, because he was there. So, What do you do when the joy is gone in our parents, as parents, in our marriage, in our job, in our ministry, in a time of grief? We invite Christ, we draw close to him, and we do whatever he says. Expect something greater. The last point I want to say. I don't want you to miss verse 11. It's my favorite verse here. We see the glory of Christ. Listen to this. Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. You know, a sign indicates us to something. It points us to something. The miracle wasn't remarkable in itself. You know, the faith healers, I, I, I really have a problem with those folks because they always draw attention to the miracle. But see, the miracles aren't the point. Jesus is the point. He shows up and something happens. And so the point in Cana is not that he made 180 gallons of wonderful wine and he solved the wedding. So every time you have a wedding, invite Jesus and he'll make you wine. No, that's not the point. The point is in any situation in your life, invite him because he has demonstrated the ability to make something out of nothing. He is, by the way, John said the creator. John told us in early in this book, he said that, that all, that the word, that all things, we're created through him. And not one thing that was created was created without him. We're talking about galaxies and universe and the earth and life and wine in a wine bottle. He did all that. That's what he does. And so this says, Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. If you read, go over to John chapter 1, verse 14. It sounds a lot like the passage we preached on Christmas Day. The word became flesh and took up residence among us. The word, the word there, it took up that he lived among us. He tabernacled. He planted his tent. It's like John is saying that we all live in this big tent camp of humanity on a plain somewhere. We all got our tents camped out here. And Jesus, the creator of the world... Every bit God brought his tent and built his tent right beside us. He just pitched his tent right in the middle of us. And that's a remarkable statement if you ever think about it. That God became flesh and he sat down with us. And Jesus, the creator of the universe, came to a wedding in Galilee because he was invited. That's, that's amazing. And then it says in John chapter 1. 1 verse 14 it says we observed his glory the glory is the one and only son from the father full of grace and truth the tabernacle you see was a place the first place of worship in the desert with the nation of israel you can picture a tabernacle tabernacle was surrounded by curtains and separations and it was a place of sacrifice and in the center of the in the center of the tabernacle There were the cherubim, the the angels, that guarded the holy of holies, the ark of the tabernacle. And that was the very presence of God. There wasn't a Holy Spirit in the life of each believer. God resided in that place. And it was surrounded by thick curtains that people never saw inside of it. But if you parted that for a minute, if you could just take that curtain apart for a minute, you would see the brightest light ever radiating that. That was the glory of God. The Shekinah glory, they called it. Well, the people of Israel never saw it. They heard about it. They read about it. They imagined what it would be like. But that's what John is saying here. He says, we observed his glory. So when Jesus came to Cana, the curtain gets parted just a little bit. And we glimpse in there and we see the glory of God. Isn't that a powerful image for us? That's what Jesus does in our life. I want you to know that, church. Because I'll tell you, I've learned this lesson that when I run dry, I can go to him and I'm replenished. I don't always think about this message. I think about other things in the Bible, but that's, that's what he does in my life. When, when I've been so overwhelmed by grief in my life that I didn't know what I was going to do or whether I could even get out of bed. I had the faith and that's all that I had and it was meager and broken and inadequate. But I came to him and he started piecing my life back. In a way that I never imagined. That's what he does. That's what I want you to know. That's what happened in Canaan. That's how powerful he is. And so this sign is. is, It must have made a real impact on those disciples. They probably knew a little bit about Jesus. They had heard John talking about him. They, They knew a little bit. They saw this. They said, oh wow. This is for real. They knew who he was. Maybe they didn't understand all of it because they go through a long learning curve like we do. But they got something. I want you to know that, church. I want you to know what Christ can do. Paul said this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's the first step that we have to come to him. We come to him like that. And we don't come to him because we know a lot or because we can do a lot or because we understand a lot. But we but we confess him with our mouth and believe in our heart that he is the Savior. He comes into our life and begins doing a work that we can't imagine. That's the glory that they saw at Canaan. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Let it pour over our hearts in a way that only you can do. Take these inadequate words and use them for your glory.